we are blessed to be able to go to the next chapter of the book of John, which we've been in for over a year now. And um, the book of John is a lot more theological than the other Gospels. The other Gospels are very historic. Not that they aren't theological, but they really outline the history of all things. John outlines the theology that was established during that time. And we wanted to look at this chapter of John as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. And very often, um, when we get to the work of the Holy Spirit, ministries tend to fall into one of two ditches. One, they fall into a ditch where they basically no longer submit to scriptures, but they submit to the unction of the Holy Spirit. They submit to what they believe the Holy Spirit is saying, wants to do, and is telling them. That's the one ditch. To throw away scriptures, which was, by the way, God breathed, to throw away scriptures and just flow is not a biblical principle. You don't see it anywhere in the Bible. You don't see the apostles doing that. You don't see it telling us to do so. But then the other ditch is to treat the Holy Spirit as if He's dead, as if He's no longer here. To live as if all we have are words on a page and completely live as if the Holy Spirit isn't with us, in us now and on us. Because the Holy Spirit is here. And when we get to John chapter 16, 15 and 16, Jesus is teaching us about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, if you remember, He was telling us that we relate to Him like a branch relates to a vine. Do you guys remember that last sermon we taught in the book of John? Because many people say, well, I, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. My question is, what nature is your personal relationship that you have with Him? Is it a business relationship? Is it a romantic relationship? What kind of na- what nature is your relationship that you have with Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us, gives us many analogies as to our relationship with Christ. It says our relationship with Christ is in fact like a sheep has a relationship with his shepherd. That is not romantic. <laughs> there are specific things that happen in that relationship that the, the shepherd leads and the sheep follow. The shepherd calls and the sheep hears. The shepherd feeds and the sheep is satisfied. Then it gives us another analogy. It says that our relationship with Jesus, because let me just quickly ask, how many of you uh, have people in your life that claim they have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? And so we have to ask, what is the nature of that personal relationship? Because nowhere do we see the apostles calling people into a personal relationship with Jesus. We see them calling them to repent and put their faith in Christ and submit to Christ. Because the next analogy we have is is an analogy that He is Father and we are His child. So we relate to God, to Christ. We relate to God like a child relates to a father. We view Him as the one who initiated our life. He's the one that raises us, like a father raises a child, trains us, disciplines us. So we see the nature of that relationship between 
child and father. We see the nature of that relationship between sheep and shepherd. We see that we are also told that our relationship with him is that of a king and a subject. He is our king. We are his subject. In other words, he rules over us. That's the nature of our relationship. A king doesn't just rule. A king also protects. We also have another relationship given to us, the analogy of a master and a, and a slave. So the Bible is very clear in explaining to us the nature of our personal relationship that we have with Jesus. Because many people say, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, I'm saved. No, folks, everybody has a personal relationship with Jesus. Even the devil does, and it's a really bad one. But he has a personal relationship with Jesus, right? So that's not the basis of anyone's salvation because you could have a, person, a really bad personal relationship. So the, personal, so the relationship that we have with him is given to us in many different analogies, including our relationship to Christ is the same as a branch has to the vine. That kind of relationship. And we are told that if we are as a branch in Him, He is the vine, we are the branches, and if we, if we are in Him and stay in Him, we will bear much fruit. Now, what are these fruits? Well, these fruits are sanctification. And they're outlined to us in Galatians chapter 5.22, I believe, where we are given the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is producing these fruits in our lives. Love, patience, kindness, self-control, okay? So all, all those fruits of the Spirit are produced by the very Holy Spirit in us. And because of our relationship that we have with Jesus, the one that sustains the branch and the one that actually enables the branch to carry the fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one that does that work. So we see in chapter the previous chapter, chapter 15, we see Jesus, in fact, teaching the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And when we get to chapter 16, what Steve just read, we see the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of not the believers, but the unbelievers. So we see these two very clear-cut pictures of how the Holy Spirit works within believers and unbelievers. So before we go into how the Holy Spirit works in the unbelievers' lives, let's just have a more comprehensive look at the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And we see that, number one, the Holy Spirit gives birth to the believer. John 3, 3, unless a man is born of God, born from above, you were once born, you came from your mother, but when you are reborn, you come from heaven. You are birthed by God. And the Holy Spirit is the one birthing you. Titus 3, verse 5. He regenerates you. Number two, we see the Holy Spirit is the seal upon the heart of the believer. Sealing the new believer for the day of redemption. There is a seal on your heart all of heaven can see. And the Holy Spirit is that seal on your heart. Thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit works sanctification in the life of a believer. 
We just talked about it, Galatians 5, 16 and 18, excuse me. Sanctification. In other words, the Holy Spirit is causing you to start bearing the fruits of the Spirit. This is the sign that you have the Holy Spirit. Just because you say ba, ba, ba does not mean you have the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, the sign of it is the fruits of the Spirit. Faithfulness, self-control, love. These are signs, fruits of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> then we see, number four, the Holy Spirit assists the believer. He is the one that assists you. He is your helper in John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for God's people according to God's will, Romans 8, 26. The Holy Spirit gives individual spiritual gifts. The giftings that you have came to you from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of fruit-bearing, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. So we see that the Holy Spirit actually is extremely active in your life and my life constantly from birthing us to sanctifying us to assisting us to helping us to sealing our hearts all the way to gifting us with gifts so that we can be fruitful and ultimately he's the one bearing those fruits because if we weren't in Christ we would be like a branch out of the vine separate from the vine and it would die and only be good for burning so the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts and our lives even now. And we need to honor God in that way. We need to be aware of that. So we see how the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of a believer. But today we are mostly going to focus on John chapter 16. I can't go through the whole chapter. There's too much, but I want to zone in on this verse right here. These verses 7 through 11 that Steve read. And here is a setting for this moment. Here is a setting where Jesus actually makes these statements, where He gives this promise of the Holy Spirit. He's actually speaking to His disciples. This is the night before He is going to be crucified on a cross. And you see Jesus' intensity escalate. And here He's telling His disciples how difficult things will become for them. He says that he's going to be killed. He says that he is leaving them. He says that the world will hate them because the world hates him. I wanted to read to you some of this very gloomy uh, portions of where Christ shares with him as to what's going to happen. John 15 verse 18 and he starts and he first tells them all of this really heavy news. And then he tells them, but I must go so that the helper can come, so that the Holy Spirit can come. So here, before he actually gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit, he says this. Verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
John 16, verse 1. It says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling. They will, they will put you out of the synagogues. In other words, they will excommunicate you. They will cancel you. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Well, I can only imagine how very confused the disciples were at this time. <laughs> because they started following Jesus, seeing him as the king, which, wa which was going to save them not leave them for the wolves who would be killing them. And he's saying to them, and those who are going to kill you, they are going to kill you thinking they're doing God a favor. They're serving God by killing you. That's what he's saying. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So Jesus tells them how radically bleak the situation is for them in this world from here on out. And on top of that, I'm leaving. I'm out, he says. But then, he actually makes this very hopeful promise, this hopeful announcement in John 16, 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world, not the, not the believers, not the church. And when he comes, he will convict those who are killing you, those who are persecuting you. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. He will convict the world, and He is convicting the world today of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That is happening today before our eyes. The Holy Spirit is convicting all unbelievers in the world. So the question that I want to answer is, what is the meaning of conviction? Because in pop culture, we have the idea of conviction works this way. Uh, you know what? I was sitting watching TV, more TV than I should have. Then I got onto Facebook and I scrolled more than I should have. And I didn't read the book that somebody gave me and I told them I was going to read it. I'm feeling pretty convicted over it. That is the general understanding of conviction. It's a feeling. Like, ah, ah. You know what? I really overate. And I know it's not a good thing, and I'm, I'm feeling a little convicted. Isn't that true? Isn't that how we interpret the word conviction? We kind of feel not, we don't feel like we did a great job. We feel like we didn't, we didn't come through. And so we got to just correct something because right now I don't feel too affirmed. I feel a little convicted over something. Well, the truth is that that word conviction is in fact referring to not having a guilty feeling, but it's a legal action taken against somebody in the court of law. It is a legal action taken against somebody in the court of law. That's where the word convict comes from, because that convict was convicted, and now he's a convict, right? 
So pop culture's understanding of that word has trivialized it and has changed the meaning of it. However, the word convicted is referring exactly to what happens in court. When a person is convicted, they are charged with a crime. They have been found guilty based on the evidence. And even if they don't think that they are guilty of that, even if they don't believe that they are guilty of that, even if they don't feel that they are guilty, they stand convicted. And they stand convicted before the law. So imagine the person standing trial in court and when he's convicted of a crime, he's often handcuffed. You've seen it in Judge Judy. Not really. It doesn't happen there. In real courts, the person gets convicted, they get cuffed, they get dragged off. And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is here to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of justice, no matter how the world feels about this. They are being convicted. You know, it's kind of like an, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you've been in court and you see somebody getting convicted on the stand and the judge drops that gavel and they have to walk out the side, they don't get to walk out with their family. They get to walk out the side cuffed. Have you ever had that experience? I have. It's almost like there's absolutely nothing you can do now. There's, it's over. The person has been convicted and off they go. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very hopeless feeling. It's an absolute checkmate situation. They, they, they cannot escape that moment. There it is. Hands are tied, literally, figuratively. This is exactly what the Bible says Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's coming to do to the world. Put them in checkmate. Take all their options away from them. Put them in a place they cannot escape. No matter how they feel, no matter what they believe, no matter what their claim is, the Holy Ghost convicts them. So let's go back to the Old Testament to see this everywhere in Bible, in the Bible. You see, in every single generation throughout history, God had his, his, persecu- or his prosecutors who convicted sinners. His prosecutors who convicted sinners. In fact, that's what, that's what happened here in Enoch, right in the beginning, the seventh generation from Adam. In Jude chapter 14, 15, we see it, it says it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Now, just quickly, let me say about that word prophesy, because I think this will be helpful in the future. The word prophesy here does not speak about, does not speak about, it's not future predicting. It's truth telling. When a prophet gets up on on, on his little soapbox and he starts shouting at the world, that prophet is prophesying when he actually speaks God's message. So anybody who speaks God's message is a prophet. He doesn't have to be future predicting. He has to be truth telling. That's what the prophets did. And here Enoch is truth telling. What truth? God's truth. That's the truth he's telling. So if you're out there speaking the truth, 
You're a prophet. <laughs> Not the P-R-O-F-I-T. The other one. Because <laughs> usually it's the opposite. If you are a prophet, there's no prophet. Just persecution. And so here we see in Jude, Jude 14 and 15, it says it was, also, uh, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. All right, so he's speaking to who? The ungodly. And what's he saying? He's convicting them. When somebody's convicted, they have a sentence spoken over them. And he is convicting the ungodly. This is clear that Enoch, God's prosecutor, gave sufficient evidence, speaking about how ungodly they are in all these things, giving evidence and giving sufficient evidence that they then are convicted. As a matter of fact, Enoch was the first prophet there to do that, but the Old Testament prophets all did it. Just as Enoch was God's prosecutor, so all of the Old Testament prophets were God's prosecutors, prosecuting the world of sin, calling them to repentance. And every single one of them were prosecutors far more than what they were comforters. They were prosecutors far more than what they were intercessors. And all of the prophets were God's prosecutors throughout the whole Old Testament. That whole entire period, that's what they did. That was their job. Speaking God's truth. Prosecuting the sinner and the pagan. So as the Holy Spirit came upon this prophet, as it, as it happened every single time, the Holy Ghost comes upon this prophet. He would prosecute, provide evidence, and convict nations, convict kings, convict entire people groups, and convict individuals. Every time the Holy Ghost would come on them, Jeremiah, Isaiah, every single one of them, they would convict nations, kings, people, groups, and individuals. Then we get to the last prophet in the Bible. We have him as Malachi. It could be Jeremiah. But, it's, but one of the, the last prophet of the Old Testament came. Then we got 400 years of no prosecution. There was nobody speaking for God. Nobody declaring God's truth amongst People of the world. So for, for, that, for that 400 years, no prosecution of sin was going on. And then comes another man filled with the Holy Ghost since he was inside of his mom, John the Baptist. Again, can you see that on Noah, I mean on, on Enoch, it was the Holy Ghost came upon him, prophesied. Every, prof, every prophet the Holy Ghost comes upon and he prophesies. Here we have John the Baptist filled with the Holy Ghost from before he came out of his mom, and he's a prophet in the New Testament. And what does he do? He convicts the world of sin. He convicts the world of sin. He doesn't make him feel bad. He declares their destiny. <laughs> and so he, he walks up to Herod, and he convicts Herod of his sin. In Luke chapter 3, 
verse 19 and 20, it says, But when John, John the Baptist, rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herod, Herodias, um, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that Herodias done, the Bible says that he rebuked him. Now that word rebuke there is the exact same word as the Holy Ghost came to convict the world of sin. Convict, rebuke, same thing. Rebuke is not the, is not the perfect word for that, for that translation. It is convict. So here, John the Baptist, when he put his finger in, in Herod's face and he said, you are breaking God's righteous law for having taken your brother's wife and marrying her. You are breaking God's law. When he did that, he was actually convicting him. Here's the evidence of your crime. You married your brother's wife. And I convict you for it. That's what he did. And then you'll see what happens in verse 20. Herod added this to, his, to all of his mistakes, all of his evils. He locked John up in prison. Of course, eventually John's beheaded. And so here John the Baptist, under the leading of the Holy Ghost, convicts Herod. And then after John the Baptist, so we have from starting with Enoch and all of the prophets, God calling them to prosecute. Then you have, after the prophets, here you have John the Baptist. And then after John the Baptist, you have the perfect prosecutor. Prosecutes the world, but he's the advocate of the church. Jesus Christ. He comes on the scene after John the Baptist. He's the perfect prosecutor, the sinless Lord. And when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And that was the trigger moment. That was the starting line for his ministry. And everywhere he went, he prosecuted sinners, especially the self-righteous. People think Jesus had this very syrupy, sweet ministry where he only uttered niceties. They think of Jesus saying things and boom, Hallmark was birthed. But look at some of this. John 7 verse 7, Jesus speaking, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John 8 44, You are of your father the devil, Jesus says, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, Satan and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Look at John 9, 39. Jesus said, For judgment I come into this world. For judgment I have come to convict. I have come to judge this world. Matthew 23, 33 says, Jesus speaking, You serpents, you snakes, you brood of vipers, who are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You aren't going to escape this. Don't think you are. You snakes. Again, people think Jesus had the syrupy sweet ministry. He absolutely did not. He was a prosecutor of a sinful world. It has to be. Because if the world wasn't found guilty, the world wouldn't find the gospel sweet. 
If the world didn't see their own sin that they were prosecuted for, grace wouldn't be amazing. And that is how the gospel has always been preached, first with prosecution, and then comes amazing grace. Conviction, and now amazing grace. Yet most still slap his hand away. I didn't like how you prosecuted me at first. I didn't like the convicting part. The Old Testament prophets were God's prosecutors of sinners. John the Baptist was God's prosecutor of sinners. Jesus was God's prosecutor of sinners. The disciples were God's prosecutors of sinners. The prophets prosecuted and were killed. John the Baptist prosecuted and was beheaded. Jesus prosecuted and was crucified. The disciples, all but one, prosecuted and then were burnt in oil, crucified upside down, sawed in two, all of them murdered. It is clear. The world does not take lightly your prosecution of them. You cannot think that you're going to be a minister and be loved by the world. If you are going to be a minister, you will be hated because they hated Christ. Why? Because He is the, he is the perfect prosecutor calling you to follow Him. Now, in no means does this mean that the person preaching the Word of God is the perfect guy. No, he's the guy that says, come with me, let's go and repent. <laughs> right? That's who this is. That's who you and I, come with, let's repent. Can you not see? Can you not see your need for a Savior? Can you not see how deep in trouble you are with the law? Can you not see you are convicted? You're a convicted spiritual felon. And now, there is grace. There is grace for you. Come and let's repent. Let's run to Christ. The gospel is so clear. If you look at the Bible as a whole and not just in sliver, slithers. So the question is, how does the Holy Spirit prosecute sinners? How does He put them in checkmate? How does He, how do you speak, how does he speak sentencing over them? How does He speak judgment over them? Well, He does so, and this is God's chosen way of doing it, by you and I preaching God's Word. It is the Holy Spirit then that convicts as you speak the Word. The Holy Spirit continues to work, but He continues the work of the apostles. He continues the work of the prophets. He continues the work of John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit is continuing to work the work of Jesus. He's continuing the work of the disciples. Now, if you hear though, a preacher today who is not a prosecutor, all he is is a defender of man. That preacher is a humanist. He defends man. The preacher that's a prosecutor, he speaks for God. You have Moses up on the mountain, right? And he's getting the Ten Commandments. He's meeting with God. And he comes down, and guess what's happening to the children of Israel? Yeah, they're dancing around this calf, right? And who made it? Aaron. Moses' brother. So the question is, are you going to be a Moses or an Aaron? <laughs> are you going to represent God 
as Moses did, or you're going to represent the people as Aaron did. Because when Moses says, what have you done? He says, the people, the people wanted this. You see? And so what, what leaders do is they go, okay, what do the people want? Instead of saying, okay, wait, I know nobody's going to like this. <laughs> but I think this, I see this is what God wants. <laughs> you know? That's the least, that's, that's the least popular position. But it's the most godly one. There really isn't another one that's godly. And so you have to choose, are you going to represent God? Or are you going to represent the people? Because if you hear a preacher who is not a prosecutor, you are listening to somebody through which the Holy Spirit cannot do His work, cannot continue His work that He started. He cannot continue His work of convicting people of sin, convicting people of righteousness, and convicting people of Judgment. When you heard it clearly, pre, clearly read, John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11, he said, And the Holy Spirit will come, and He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of justice. But His ministers aren't doing any of it. They're affirming people for who they are. They go with whatever the people want, just like Aaron did. They inspire, and they motivate, and they blow smoke. And the Holy Spirit's over there like, wait a minute, I got a ministry. I got a ministry. I'm trying to find a minister. <laughs> I can minister through. Because what I'm here to do is to convict the world of sin. But they won't speak it. You've never heard Joel use the word sin. They don't do it. They don't use the word repent. They don't use the word wrath or wrath. They don't, they don't, you will never find that, that terminology. Why? Golden calf, that's why. It's not the work of the Holy Ghost. It's humanists. Humanism. Because you have to ask yourself, what is the work of the Holy Spirit not in the church? but to the world. What is that work? It's obvious he said it. So the, so the Holy Spirit uses external preaching of the word and internally convicts that sinner when he hears the word being preached. Your job is to speak the word of God, to teach the word of God to your children, to your family, to your neighbors, to everybody. That's your job. And the Holy Ghost can, if you faithfully do so, he will then do what he does, which is to convict that person of sin. And when a person is convicted of sin, when they're handcuffed, and when they're taken out of that courtroom, suddenly they go, I need somebody to save me from the situation. I need, I need somebody to get me out of here. And they run to Christ. And they run to Christ. Can you see that? That's the gospel. So the conclusion here is if you want to minister in the Holy Spirit then you will have to first find in scriptures everything we need to know about sin. What? Uh, but there is one very specific sin referred to right here when he says he's come to convict the world of sin. Do you know what that sin is? He says it. He says it. To go back to the very opening, 
to our, to our scripture, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, he will send, he will, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Sin, because they do not believe in me. What is the world's sin? Rejecting Christ. That's the world's sin. And all other sins come after that one. Because if, you, if He's your Lord, if you say, okay, I won't reject Him, but I'm going to keep sinning, well, then He's not your Lord, is He? So that's the first, most important, primary sin for which all of them are going to be poured into hell because they rejected Christ. But if they accepted Him as Lord, well, then you can start talking about everything else. Now, what are you going to do with the fact that you guys aren't married, but you're living together? What are you going to do about that? These things need to be dealt with after they have accepted Christ. If you push somebody to say, and you say to them, hey, listen, you know what? You need to stop, that. You need to stop stealing. Just stop stealing because you're going to go to hell for that. No, they're not. They're going to hell for rejecting Christ. And uh, the fact, the, 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 the proof that they've rejected Christ is that they steal and they won't stop. <laughs> you know, because if they accepted Christ, they would answer to his lordship that tells them to stop and they would stop. But if you just get them to stop sinning but never accept Christ, now they are even worse off. Leave them, let them sin, I mean, let them steal. At least they have something on their way to hell, you know. Otherwise, they just stop stealing and still go to hell. So the first we need to do is we need to find all the scriptures that we need to know about concerning sin. Especially rejecting Christ. Secondly, you and I have to preach righteousness. Righteousness. Because the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is saying, you see, He is righteous. He is righteous. Jesus Christ, the only righteous. And He is sufficiently righteous to go to the Father, into the Father's presence. He is sufficiently righteous. And you, standing next to Him, you fall short. That is what He said, convicting the world of righteousness. That's what that means. Here is your measuring stick, Jesus, and you fall short. You have been weighed and you've been found wanting. And this is why the gospel, uh, um, the double imputation, the doctrine of double imputation, which means that on the cross, all of my sin was accounted unto him. It's like he has an account. I have an account. My account has sin in it, and it was transferred into his account. My sin was transferred unto him, was imputed unto him, and His righteousness is imputed unto you if you believe in Christ. As sinful as you were, He took it upon Him. As righteous as He is, He gave, He put it upon you. And the sinners need to know this. The world needs to know this. The Holy Ghost wants to convict them of the fact that they fall short. They've been weighed and they've been found wanting as they stand next to Christ, the righteous. And only Christ is righteous sufficiently enough to go to the Father. That's why He says... He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, that's their sin. Concerning righteous, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. I am righteous. I can enter His presence. 
but the rest of the world falls short. And then thirdly, we preach judgment. That's what the, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He conf, convicts them of judgment. So we ought to preach judgment if we want to preach a Holy Ghost sermon. <laughs> like literally right now in our world, uh, the church is in such an interesting state. If you say we're going to have a Holy Ghost service, what comes to your mind? Yeah. <laughs> Dancing? What? Down. Falling down? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just really, you, could, you could almost expect anything, right? Um, and we're going to schedule the Holy Ghost to be there that day. We're going to have a Holy Ghost revival from April 1 to April 2, those two days. And it's going to end on April 2, okay? Just so you know. <laughs> but if you want to preach... The Holy Ghost, you have to preach the word that is Holy Ghost breathed. If you want to preach the Holy Ghost, you have to preach the purpose the Holy Ghost is here for. So he says, judgment. Why? He says, because, watch this. He says, so first concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I've got to preach judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He is judged. Uh, so that didn't make sense to me. However, what that means, initially it didn't make sense to me. It's saying that we need to show from Scripture that the person outside of Christ is damned because the most, e most powerful evil being, creature that exists, is already judged Therefore, don't let the lesser ever think they're going to get away with this. If God's already judged the most evil creature, then know this, you will not escape. So we see the prophets, Enoch all the way through to Malachi. We see the prophets under the Holy Ghost prosecuting sinners. Then we see John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Ghost, prosecuting sinners. Then we see Jesus, as He came up out of the water, filled with the Holy Ghost, starts His ministry and prosecutes sinners. All of them died for it. And then we see the disciples. They're like, I thought that was an Old Testament thing. No, it's a New Testament thing. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Peter is standing up and he's preaching. This is the very first message preached after Christ rose, after they got filled with the Holy Ghost. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Now, he's preaching to all those guys that were standing going like, what's going on with these people? They're all speaking in different languages, Chinese and Japanese, and they're just, they just praising God in all the different ethnicities and tongues that there is around the world. And what's go are these people drunk? They're like really happy. What's going on? And Peter gets up and he speaks to the crowd. He says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow. You crucified, 
and killed. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, this Jesus, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. What's this? Conviction. You've just been convicted. It's almost like he stands there as a judge and he tells them, you murdered. It's prosecuting them, convicting them, giving evidence. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why does he say by the hands of lawless men? Because they were the ones that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And these lawless men went and crucified him. It was because of the masses, the crowds, these people that Peter is speaking to. They forced the hands of the Romans to crucify Jesus. So here we see Peter prosecutes. And through evidence of their deeds, he convicts them of the crime of killing Jesus. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up. Verse uh, 32, it says, This Jesus raised up, and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. You see, this is proving Christ's righteousness, showing Jesus is sufficiently holy to enter God's presence. Righteousness was done, He came out of death. Righteousness was done, He entered God's presence. Because He was perfectly righteous, He was able to do that. It is the righteousness that God accepts. That's why He could do it. Unless you have that righteousness imputed unto you, of course, you cannot enter God's presence like He just did. So in other words, unless righteousness is imputed unto you, people, you ain't going into God's presence ever. That's what he's saying. So first you can see He convicts them of sin, and then He convicts them of righteousness. It says in verse 33, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Then here, preached, here Peter preaches judgment. Watch this. For David did not ascend into, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord say, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Judgment. Watch what happens then. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, <laughs> he reminds them, you're guilty. Now people go, people go like, well, you know what, that's not pragmatically, that's not going to work for a church. A church will close down if what you do is you preach what the Holy Ghost came to do. If you do that, people aren't going to like it. It's a new day, new age. You have to be throw in a joke or two in the beginning, throw a joke in the middle, and make sure that everybody's excited and, and encouraged right at the end, so that when they walk out, now this is a term I, I learned from Highlands Church, they've got to walk out feeling pumped. Literally, that's their plan. They plan their service around people walking out feeling better than what they walked in. And so people go like, well, that's, this message is not going to work. Well, let's see if it worked. Well, let's see if it doesn't work. Verse 36, 
Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is where the Holy Ghost convicts their hearts. He actually convicts their heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, quote, Brothers, what shall we do? Now these people who just got convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, this is what they said. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many, of, many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. He just got finished preaching the three things the Holy Spirit came to do, which is convict of sin, convict of righteousness, convict of judgment. And 3,000 said, what must we do? And they got baptized that day. So the conclusion is, you will get the Holy Spirit's results when you preach the Holy Spirit's message. See, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. He works through our preaching as He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And those are the three pillars of the gospel. You cannot, there is no gospel if that is not the foundation of it. Again, don't be fooled. If somebody preaches a gospel that doesn't have those three pillars as the foundation, which is a conviction of sin, don't have that. It's not a gospel. There is no grace. There is no good news if it wasn't first bad news. There is no grace if there wasn't first law. Amen. Father, today we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, as we look into your word as Jesus spoke it that we will see the very good news. We recognize the good news. We are grateful, we are thankful, we are humbled by this good news. Lord, we know that we were convicted of our sin. The penalty of sin is death. For we have all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. We have been convicted of it. We are guilty of it. There's enough evidence. And the Holy Spirit convicts us prosecutes us. At the same time, we realize that our righteousness, the righteousness we have of our own is not sufficient to enter God's presence. But you made a way through Christ where your righteousness could be imputed unto us through Jesus Christ Himself. And our sins could be imputed unto Him. Not only are we forgiven, but we are made right. We are forgiven because our sins are put upon Christ, but we are made right because His righteousness has been put upon us. And finally, we have been convicted unto judgment, but because of Christ, thank be to God, thanks be to God. Your grace is beautiful. Your grace is amazing. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the Word this morning?